Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. I am your host, Brandy Miller, and today I'm so excited to do an episode on Patriarchy 101 with my good friend, Erna Kim Hackett. In this episode, we tried to make plain what is often intuitive or kind of out of reach for us about how patriarchy impacts our lives, our theology, our sense of self, and our bodies. And so I really hope that you enjoy this episode with Erna Hackett. I also wanted to shout out our Patreon folks who keep this podcast going. If you want to support us on Patreon and keep this podcast going, you can do so at patreon.com slash brandymiko. Just $5 a month gets you extra episodes that are going to be coming out more consistently because I've been very bad at that. But an episode this week will be coming out about God as mother. It's so good, y'all. We also have our Advent books available for sale at shoprmt.com. So if you need a resource to help you get through this season, we wanted to make sure that we had something out there for you. I know this journey around patriarchy is a challenging one, and there's so many things going on in our lives, but I'm so grateful for the ways that we are all engaging and figuring things out. So please give us feedback. Let us know what you're thinking about on Instagram and on social media, because we really do want to do all of this together. So with that, enjoy this episode. listener know that um Erna and I struggle with a hard pivot from just casual conversation that we're having to when we hit record and that's what you're gonna get right now but I will say I this is part of our dynamic I love getting to talk to you Erna so I'm so grateful that you are on again today thank you Brandy it's a pleasure to join you for season two (laughs) I know when people are like what season are you on I'm like I think this is technically like conceptual season two but actual season six but who knows what that means because I just put out too much content (laughs) because your white supremacy quote-unquote first season was like 40 episodes long yeah okay I get it white (laughs) supremacy as we've noted in this time period that we're living in is the worst so there was plenty to talk about Um, But as we make the pivot toward patriarchy, I'm just really glad to have you on because I know you've done a lot of thinking about this slash are a woman and have experienced a lot of this. And so I think that because so many conversations are about patriarchy are from the perspective of men or male identifying folks, it's almost impossible to not um, have a ton of freaking gaps in there. But before we get started, I haven't talked to you in a bit on the podcast. So I would love for folks who don't know you to get to know you a little bit. So Erna, what does it mean to be you right now? Well, I feel ready for that. I'm going to reintroduce myself um, for folks who might be new. Um, My name is Erna Kim Hackett. I'm the founder of Liberated Together, which creates community for women of color, followers of Jesus. We explore liberated and embodied theology, decolonized approaches to social justice, and radical solidarities across ethnic lines. I had to read that off the website to make sure I got it succinct. But what it means (laughs) right now... In my life, to be me is I love women of color and queer women of Mm. color. I love us. I build my whole life and work, leadership, coaching, community building around my deep belief in our liberation and healing and how as that happens, others will become healed and freed and more Mm. joyful. So that is what I am about, what I am centered in, what I live for and breathe for every day. Yeah, I love that and have benefited from your work and know so many people have. Um, Is there anything else that you want people to know about your life or what you are up to in the world? Mm, Not really. Great. (laughs) (laughs) I will just leave that right out. I'm working on a book on benevolent white supremacy and I'm hoping to have the manuscript done by the end of the year. So 
Let's, you know, seek God about that, saints. <laughs> uh, this season, we are diving into patriarchy and purity culture, as you know. Um, but in order to do that, I think it's super important that we have a sense of the scope, implications, and lived realities that come from patriarchy, specifically Christian patriarchy. So as we get started, I want to do some definitions. And I want to do that specifically because white supremacy feels like easier, like I had said in a, in a conversation with Dr. Jennings, easier to let go of. But patriarchy for many of us seems more inherent. And so I think it sits... Just, just underneath the surface of oh, so many things that happen in our theological and spiritual life, as well as just like our embodied family life. And so, Erna, could you give us a definition to work with? What is patriarchy, Christian patriarchy? How are those different? Give us a sense of what Christian patriarchy looks like. Sure. I mean, I just want to start by agreeing with you that I do think in my work with women of color that tackling white supremacy is easier. And I do think that's because if you have grown up in a Christian space, there is a deeper non-verbal internalization of patriarchy and kind of an agreement to it that many women are not ready to grapple with until they are in their 30s and 40s. Mm. And I think there is a part of where women often have to be in their own journey of self and identity before they're really ready to grapple with it. I also think that we've been told that patriarchy is reduced down to a conversation around, do you support women in leadership or not? So I think actually mm -hmm. many women who are in spaces that say they support women in leadership do less work around patriarchy because they think they're in like the positive side of the conversation. And that actually is, it's just like a fog that makes us blind to the ways that patriarchy is absolutely pervasive. It is a system, a culture, a worldview, a value system. It shapes our language, mm -hmm. our theology, and it is literally pressed into our bodies. So that I think are some of the limiting factors around it. On a most basic level, patriarchy of any form is usually requires a rigid definition of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and then stacks them in hierarchy in relationship with each other. Mm -hmm. That's just that's just patriarchy in general. Christian patriarchy is unique. It's sort of the same and yet different. I would say you tackled some of this in your conversation with Dr. Jennings, which is it's anchored around the headship, right? It's like God is a father and, um, you know, women are married and submit to the headship of their husbands. And so it's the hierarchy within the family unit. And there gets to be this like weird workarounds of like, oh, it's most important to submit to the headship of your husband. Not every man, but it really is about every man. Mm -hmm. yeah. And to name also that often patriarchy is discussed as the, you know, elevating of men, but it is also the denigration of proximity to the feminine. So mm. anything that is appears feminine or female, um, whether that be a way someone leads or speaks or a body or a leadership style or a theology or a way of talking about God is denigrated. That's the lowest level, but all the way down to dealt with violently. Mm. And so patriarchy doesn't exist without doing violence to the feminine. So that would be some kind of opening ways I think about it. I don't know how you would want to add to that. Yeah, I mean, the most basic, far distant definition of patriarchy is essentially father rule, so that the patriarch of the family leads out. But how that's manifests itself in modernity has been more that it is the yeah, domination of men in all aspects of church, of life, of leadership. 
And I think what becomes complicated for Christians is that it becomes like a theological debate about something that is seen as like a secondary or tertiary issue. So like complementarianism or egalitarianism. But the reality is when we start to talk about complementarianism or the idea, when you put it in its most benevolent terms, that men and women have different roles and they're of equal value. But I'm like, yeah, but if they don't have equal power and equal authority, then they are not equal in role. And so I think some people try to split hairs by being like, I'm not patriarchal, I'm complementarian. And I'm like, that's like asking whether it's a fish or a salmon. It might be distinct in its specifics, but it's actually not that different all around. And so I think that the result of complementarianism's impact on patriarchy and patriarchy conversations is that it dresses up men's dominance as God's best and God's will for people and the best way to live a life. Right. And I think that's what becomes so tricky if you follow Jesus and have grown up in Christian spaces is how deeply we've internalized this is how God wants it. Right. Mm -hmm. That to go against it is to really to disrupt God's order of things. And even Mm -hmm. if it's destroying you, 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 you either have to leave the church to find freedom or you have to submit your will more because it's just your rebellious spirit. And it's these really complex, painful dynamics that women are trying to navigate. And it all goes back to this unquestioned premise, which is, this is how God wants it. This is how God designed it. So it's so much more than just, oh, women in leadership or not. That's why it's so hard to tackle because it's down to these almost unquestioned foundational worldview type beliefs. And that is stuff that we're not even used to putting into words or articulating. Yes. And I think that what you're describing too is the rigidity of patriarchy that says there's only certain ways that one can be. And I think even the rigidity of like male and female, man and woman, so we can talk about sex, we can talk about gender. And the violence that that does to queer folks is through elimination. And so I think that even as we have these conversations about patriarchy, we're going to talk a lot in binaries, but recognizing that those binaries themselves erase queerness, erase intersex people. It erases so much about what it means to not fit into the rigidity of how Christian patriarchy describes the ideal man or woman. And so I think I want to name that on the front end because we're going to keep that kind of lens around queerness in mind as we go through this entire season, knowing that one of the biggest things that patriarchy does is normalize violence against queer folks. Let me just add to that because I would say that I agree with everything that you're saying. And I would say that people are going to ask then as we talk about patriarchy, how do we get free from it? And I would say the queering of theology and the queering of our worldview actually is what sets us free. That is part of why patriarchy is so hostile towards queerness. And just to explain Mm -hmm. that, if feminism is trying to take the stacked boxes and move them side by side, which is a very basic explanation of feminism and is more about white feminism, queerness would say... Why do we need boxes at all, Mm -hmm. right? And queerness is trying to move out of that rigid container, whereas patriarchy insists on rigid containers and hierarchy. Queerness is all about removing those hierarchies and those rigid containers. And so queerness or the queering of theology is liberative to everyone, not just queer folks. And as we are all looking to get free from patriarchy, queerness is a gift. The queering of theology is a gift to all of us. And so I want to name that, that yes, patriarchy, of course, erases queer people. And that our liberation is gifted to us by the queering of theology and queerness. Entirely. And I think specifically because the rigidity of patriarchal ideas forces 
everyone to do violence against their own bodies and their own their own sense of self in order to fit a definition of masculinity or femininity that isn't fitting for anyone really like there's very few people who can fit into that naturally and so i think queerness rescues us from needing to do violence to our identities and how we manifest our expression of gender or sexuality or sex in the world i mean you're starting to get at one of the deepest expressions of patriarchy, which is training women and femme folks to tolerate violence being done to us mm. and normalizing that in order for us to stay in the church, which literally silences us, devalues our bodies, erases our leadership and influence and God given purposes in this world. We have to learn how to ignore all the signs that our body is giving us that this place is not safe or life-giving to us. And so it teaches us, forces us to collectively do violence to ourselves in order to stay mm -hmm. in the church. And part of healing work that I do in my cohorts and coaching that anyone who's trying to do healing around this is rebuilding a trusting relationship with our own bodies. Mm-hmm. Right, that our bodies are good and a gift from God, and um, and that listening to it is the path to healing and freedom versus, you know, what we're told. You know, it's going to lead us down to too much porn and masturbation, which is apparently <laughs> the thing we should all fear more than anything. Yes, and apparently that's like worse than sexually abusive preachers and pastors. It's worse than the violence done by subjugating women and queer folks over and over again in patriarchal worldviews. And so even those hierarchies and those binaries that you're talking about play out in what we rank as like gender-based, as the church would call it, I think, like quote unquote sin or whatever, without recognizing that the system itself, the worldview is producing all of the things that we're critiquing or not critiquing because the pastors might be doing those things. And so I just wonder, I think I wonder about that um, and how we will over these next many, many months of talking <laughs> over about Over these next decades. Become, yeah, it's going to be a very long time that we're going to be talking about this. So as, as we get into some of these things, can we talk a little bit more about some of the tenets of patriarchy? Because I think that there are some things that are like really, really specific. So I can name a few. And then if we if we have more, we can just bounce around on them. But one of them is that uh, patriarchy, like Christian patriarchy, really heavily relies on this, you mentioned it earlier, like that male leadership in the home carries over into the church so that men are both leaders in the household and in the church and a God honoring society or a quote unquote Christian nation will prefer the leadership of men over women and then find kind of all these kinds of ways to religiously engage with women in political space. And so I'm thinking even about like Sarah Palin, who's like, I will admit I voted for back then when I was a Tea Party conservative. You can own that. <laughs> but I remember the critiques of Sarah Palin being like, is a woman fit to be the vice president of a Christian nation that's under God? Because God could in no way want someone who is as feminine as Sarah Palin to be out there. So I think a lot of us turned to like Hillary Clinton and be like, oh, yeah, religious people hated her and like stereotyped her as being a bitch or too aggressive or whatever. But I was like, but they did that to Sarah Palin, too. So if your patriarchy hate Sarah Palin first, that tells you a lot about the rigidity of those standards and how much men, Christian men specifically, believe themselves to be God-ordained to lead and to rule in all aspects of life. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so bad. 
I think as I'm listening to you, you're getting around, you're, you're circling the logical inconsistencies that people are willing to put up with as long as it keeps them in power, right? Because patriarchy mm. is deeply interested in power. And one of the things th- that I think you see in the Christian world is like, oh no, men must always lead. Women can be missionaries though, and you can send them overseas and they can lead men of color in other countries, Mm. right? But it's just about women leading here. And so I think as we think about, obviously we're located here in the United States and we're talking about the way that patriarchy, Christianity, and whiteness interact with one another and that it really is about white men maintaining power and being willing to tolerate white women in a certain capacity if it will maintain power. Um, and white women being willing to put up with those logical inconsistencies because they want the proximity to power. Yes. And it's the notion, I think another way that that happens, particularly with whiteness, is that if a, if patriarchy says that a husband and a father is the head of the household, is the family leader, the provider, the protector, you know, you can name, we can name a bunch of things, that there is a way in which the family unit, like Dr. Jennings talked about, becomes so central. And I think that the homeschool movement in the U.S. in the 60s was birthed out of this white panic about the family unit being broken down. And so they leaned into their racism and their need to segregate by basically implying that black people were not Christian. And so it was black people aren't Christian. Fathers need to produce a thoroughly Christian education in order to make sure that their kids end up like them. And so white maleness becomes the standard in which all, quote unquote, biblical patriarchy rests. And I think we, one of the things I'd love for you to talk about a little bit is the um, where this comes from, because I think that theologically we come into this idea not out of nowhere. And like there are places that men go to buttress their rule in the world. And I think the easiest one for me is talking about Genesis 1 and 2, which assumes that God divinely ordains men through the created order to lead. As though somehow like if you create something first, it's better. And I'm like... I know a lot of firstborn children who would really interrupt that notion. (laughs) Well, and I think that, you know, you're naming what patriarchy is so obsessed with, which is order, control, and power. And there's just this unbelievable anxiety, you know, and that's why you hear like feminism get talked about as like, it's destroying the family. What? Where does that logic come from? And the logic is... Right, we are always on the cusp of being ruined by the world, and patriarchy is giving us this order and structure that we need in order to survive this dangerous world. Mm-hmm. Data points of how it's going with dudes at the helm of Christianity would suggest that it's going pretty badly. Right, <laughs> there's always this like, God, if we let women lead, like things will probably go terribly. And I'm like, more terribly than this, than like (laughs) settler colonialism, than genocide, than rape culture, than white supremacy, like than a a white nationalist Christianity, like worse than this, than covering over for predators, both in the Catholic tradition and the Protestant tradition, like worse than this, like what would it, y'all really aren't worried about the actual bad things that are happening. And then you've Mm -hmm. created this boogeyman of should women get any power, like everything would fall apart. Saints, everything is falling apart due to the imbalance. (laughs) And I would just offer, like one, you said about things that come at the beginning are most important. It's not as if how those scriptures were written or when they were written was in that order, 
right? Genesis came about much later as mm-hmm. like the people of God, as like the Israelites were navigating oppression and suffering and displacement. Then this origin story became a way of ori- orienting themselves in, while they were in exile. So there's also this supremacy Right, it's it's cre- making the Bible become a type of linear story that it's not, mm-hmm. and it's presenting the content in a misleading way. Um, it's also trying to ask it to do something prescriptive that it just never was meant to do, and so it's a lot of very poor Bible work. And the other thing I would offer is like to me, dark swirling liquid that produces life is the most like womb-like birthing image possible that they somehow turn into like this rigid, violent hierarchy. So there's, there's just so many ways to respect the text and read it differently. Yes. And I think even to notice that the text is coming from a group of people who are entrenched in patriarchy. And just because they wrote something through the only lens that they had for the world doesn't mean that that's the only lens in which it can be read. And so I think that there are many ways in which we say like, well, the Bible clearly says, or the Bible says this thing. And I'm like, the Bible clearly says a lot of things that we would not feel comfortable doing, espousing, engaging with ourselves. Like there's so many of those things. Yet with things like gender and sex, we are so uh, quick to maintain this order that you're talking about and control and power that it becomes necessary to create a kind of narrative around it. And I think I will just be honest, I get really annoyed around these conversations around the creation narratives because they become this like fighting ground on gen- along some gendered lines where women are then like, you know, but Ezra Kenegdo, the word for helper is mostly used for God in the scriptures. And so it's like strong and powerful. And I'm like, okay, but why is it that we need to lean into metaphors of like, strength and power and being kind of aggro in order to engage with femininity as something that is important in this in this world that we are in. And so I think that there are many ways in which we take the tools of patriarchy and then try to use them against patriarchy in a way that, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yes. Yes. And I would say if you are interested in a different reading, The Womanist Midrash is a great introduction to understanding how the feminine is present in Genesis in a different reading of that text. So that's an excellent, well, Gaffney does great work there. Do you have a paraphrase of that? If I'm, remem- if I'm remembering or summarizing co- correctly, it's basically that if you look at the different words in reference for God, there is both a masculine word and a feminine word. And that as we get this sort of God hovering or fluttering over the waters, that there is a feminine divine presence and a masculine divine presence together, which totally makes sense to me balanced. Why would you have, why would you create male and female and hate one from the jump? That is literally one of the most absurd concepts I could possibly think of, but is literally like what patriarchy requires. Like I made women, always hated them. And then it erases the feminine, the female. And I'm right. And we're using this, the feminine and the female in the broadest sense, right? Not in the very like reductionistic, like you wear high heels and, but in the very broad concepts of the word. So, um, it's just really helpful to know, like the feminine and the masculine are together at the beginning with creator. And I think that that matters as much as I want to go against some of these ways that people like to argue around Genesis one, it is helpful to know there are liberative readings of it. 
Yes. And then that pulls us straight into even I, I think uh, Dr. Gaffney talks too about Eve and how we're unwilling to give Eve the benefit of a doubt in her own theologizing about God. When she's saying what she heard God say about what would happen if she ate from the tree, a lot of us go back in the text and we're like, well, it didn't say that. The narrator didn't say that. And I'm like, oh, our distrust of women both assumes male narration of the story. It assumes maleness of God. And it assumes that this woman is completely unable to, unreliable to narrate her own experience of what God told her. And so I think that there are many ways that we see that play out in patriarchal patriarchal culture that assumes that women are too emotional, too easily deceived. Like I remember being taught specifically that like women couldn't preach because they were they brought too much emotion to the stage. Yeah. When I look at men in leadership, they seem super emotionally objective. That's my main <laughs> takeaway from the last few years of watching American Christianity. Oh my god. But I think what you're getting at there is, again, because we've been taught an utterly reductionistic understanding of what patriarchy is and how it impacts Christianity, we're like, oh, well, it, it kind of, it's about, can women lead? And it's about these particular texts. No. Toxic patriarchal interpretations of the Bible influence literally every verse and chapter and book. And it has tilted in a way that is hostile to women. Not just the ones explicitly about women. Every passage has been interpreted in a way that is denigrates the feminine, erases the feminine, and reinforces patriarchy. And so we have to undo all those interpretations. And men do not need to be actively trying to be violently patriarchal to be sustaining and continuing and enacting patriarchal interpretations. They don't even know they're doing it. It was just given to them and they just keep passing it on. Yeah, can you give me some examples of that or how you see that playing out? Well, we're heading into Advent, and the whole way Mary gets talked about in Advent makes me want to blow things up. But, you know, Mary is kind of a, a passive, empty vessel whose body is what's useful, but she's not co creating. She isn't an active part of it. She doesn't shape Jesus, she doesn't actually mother him. Right? She's just a uterus. Mary, did you know? Yeah, she knows. She wrote like theological reflections on it that shaped like the rest of Jesus's life. She was an actual mother. I see it in the way people interpret the wedding at Cana as um, the way uh, Jesus interacts with his mother, this assumption that he's dismissive and annoyed with her. Versus, mm -hmm. if you consider, one, the way that word woman there is used is the same word woman that he uses to address her when he's on the cross, dying, yeah. and wanting to make sure that she's going to be taken care of. It is a term of affection. It's a loving term, right? So it's not like, woman, what's wrong with you? It's, yeah. It, it has, carries much more tenderness. And if you look, nobody makes Jesus do a miracle when he doesn't want to. Right. People are always trying to get him to do stuff. So this dismissive attitude of like, oh, my God, why did Mary come up and try to make him do stuff? She comes up and tells Jesus about the running out of wine and Jesus does perform a miracle. So is it possible that he respects her, that she is influencing him? Right. So name a single and I used, you know, um, but take a name a single time where the assumption is that women are respected intelligent and contributing positively the assumption mm. is always negative so those yes. would be some ones that come to mind that are you know merry because we're heading towards advent but there's many more well yeah and the assumption of negativity is so 
prominent that I have watched men do these theological gymnastics to to further entrench their worldview around patriarchy or make it make sense or justify it. Even thinking about Deborah in Judges. So Deborah is is seen as a judge in the book of Judges. I believe it's Judges 8, somewhere in there. And (laughs) yeah, judge in the book of Judges. Uh, Yeah, so Deborah is this judge. And what I often heard was like, oh, you know, the world was so evil. The book of Judges starts with like, everything was evil and every man did what was right in their own eyes. And there was no man to lead. So God like settled with a woman. And if there was a man who was capable of leading, God would not have chosen Deborah. God would not have used JL in the same passage and in the same book. And so I think I just hear oftentimes this kind of weird justifying, this weird moving of women into always the pejorative. It's always pejorative. And this elevating of these horrible fucking men as heroes in the text to the detriment of women in the stories and our own worldviews now. Okay, we have to discuss this. So you've discussed this in reference to white supremacy, but the blanket of innocence and the benefit of the doubt. Patriarchy creates this sort of no matter what men do, they are innocent. They are still God's instrument. David being kind of the classic example of like, well, he was a man after God's own heart. Okay, maybe like when he was anointed and when he was young, but when he becomes a very rapey man who is not out there fighting on the battlefield the way he was supposed to be, was just lounging at home while his soldiers were out there, he is now problematic leader. But the way that they and men interpret that is like, no, no matter what he's doing, he's still always a man after God's own heart. And Bathsheba, look at her, that little tart, tempting David. You're like, you mean when she was just being a normal woman taking a bath and he stayed home when he should have been out with his soldiers? Like literally the thing when we, you know, Saul is the negative example when we get introduced to David and Goliath. Right. But now he's doing the exact same thing. But it's that idea of like, no. Um, so the, you, you saw this when we try to bring critique to male leaders like Robbie Zacharias or Bill Hybels. It's that sort of like, but if they're a leader, we tolerate any kind of wrongdoing because the ends justify the means. And the primary litmus test among cr- American Christians is like, if there's people, God likes it. Right. If yep. the church has grown, God likes it. God's blessing it, which is a terrible assessment tool, but is like the the one that is used. Um, so you see that the constant innocence and that rings particularly true, you know, with the recent like not guilty verdict around Rittenhouse is mm-hmm. the like you can walk around with guns, you can murder people in public space, but the blanket of your white male innocence will protect you. Yes. Um and your purpose will always be interpreted as good and needful in the world, even when it is death bringing. And that's the other thing is that patriarchy tolerates or insists on violence in the world. And I, I've always like this idea of like blood, um, you know, the blood that comes from women's bodies is just so gross. Periods are gross. Blood mm-hmm. that's shed by violence in the military. Oh, that's very powerful and, and should be really honored. Really? Blood that creates life is gross and blood that is murder is good. That's Mm -hmm. the logics of patriarchy. It totally is. And I think the theology that gets put on that is like, 
God picks imperfect leaders and redeems them for God's plans. Like Romans 8, 28, like all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to God's purposes in the world. And so it doesn't matter how bad your leader is, if the fruit of it, to use the language of, of church, if the fruit is good, it doesn't matter how toxic the leader is. And I think that's part of where people are so obsessed with like the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast is that there is this way in which the storytelling of it, which I find to be incredibly problematic, is that, you know, God was still at work in the midst of this like toxic thing. And I'm like, can we just name that the thing was fucking toxic, that the thing was really bad. And that while there were people there that were impact that were impacted by God in some way, we can say that while also saying very clearly, Mark Driscoll is the archetype of toxic masculinity and patriarchy, misogyny and chauvinism going to their farthest extent being paid for by the church. And so I think that there's a way that that even that kind of passive and indirect not checking of masculinity makes it so that men can be as toxic as they want to be. And the structures are in place in the church to keep them in place. And this gets to one of my favorite frameworks is, which is I like to call penis theology, which is this view of like, Christianity is all about putting your seed out into the world, you know, and as long as you're like more people are coming and you're spreading the word, then it's God's will, right? And then that moves us into these kind of, you know, patriarchal archetypes. I think if you're in a very conservative context, it's about like father and head pastorship. But I think if you're in these sort of like moderate evangelical spaces, it's about being a planter, right? That was like mm -hmm. Driscoll's thing. Or it's about being a businessman, essentially, which is like Bill Hybels thing, right? Like a big replicable church, you know, big box churches, churches that have multiple sites, right? Essentially that are the franchise business model, right? And so this, whatever, it doesn't matter if it's healthy. It's this obsession with spreading the seed, justifying everything yes that has gotten us to a terrible place and let us know is antithetical to jesus's ministry there are mm -hmm. so many times when jesus could have gotten more popular and had more people following him and he goes no that's not what i'm going to do also to show that jesus in how he led his ministry was antithetical to many of these violently masculine tropes. I mean, there's literally multiple stories about how he just gets a big group of people together, sits them down and feeds them. That's woman's work. Okay. Sitting people down, just feeding them, making sure everyone's fed after like that currently in church world is delegated to women, right? That's mm -hmm. woman's work, but Jesus is doing it. And he loves to just talk about like, you know, setting a table, right? Like Jesus as a host, yeah. as a server of food, right? Playing that, building community in that type of nurturing way, just utterly erased, utterly erased. Yes. And just the assumption that even as Jesus is trying to build, even as Jesus is building his ministry and it gets bigger and bigger, the thing that he does every time his ministry starts to get big, which by all accounts would be a failure, like you've said, is he gives a harder teaching. And the harder teaching is always something like, love your enemies, be more inclusive, make this thing beyond you and what your religious and social and ethnic assumptions are. Like, I'm opening this thing up. Like, and if you, if you don't open it up, it's going to break and spill out all over in a way that's detrimental to everything. And so I think that there's ways that that, 
yeah, that that plays out over and over again. And I think that this, as you call it, penis theology ends up existing and progressing is through the idea of a central male leader or a like a yeah like a central male pastor and i've watched so many churches fall apart because that one man was toxic unchecked and had a group of guys circling the wagons around him to protect him from any kind of accountability for his toxic masculinity and his patriarchy his sexual abuse his violence both to his staff and to people in his church and I want to name specifically that this is not unique to like, I think there's some way that like when we're talking about white supremacy, we're like those people over there or like, and I think that lots of progressive folks would be like, yeah, we're beyond this. But there is nothing more exhausting to me than an organization that says it cares about racial justice, but will not, that's led by like a white man that is unwilling to step aside to let someone, to let a woman or a person of color lead. I've actually never seen a big church collapse because a woman left lead leadership of that, like main leadership of that church. And so I just want to name that progressive spaces might actually be worse about this because they're unaware that they're doing it. Because at least there's something, what I what I can appreciate about people who ascribe to vocally biblical patriarchy or complementarianism is at least they own it. Yeah. Or in progressive spaces, leaders do not own that they're ba- being patriarchal and don't own that their masculinity is getting in the way of them being good leaders. Look, the vast majority of women I coach who are dealing with the trauma of patriarchy are coming out of justice-oriented nonprofits that would say they support women in leadership. They're not coming out of conservative spaces. And what happens is these men, they're not really interested about liberate, breaking down patriarchy. They primarily compare themselves to more conservative men, feel like they're doing better than those men and expect gratitude from women because they're better than those guys over there. So they are not interested in liberating everyone, including themselves from patriarchy. They still love top-down leadership. They still yeah. love personality-driven leadership. They still love power hoarding. Right? They don't want that interrogated. And if you are not grateful to them, the level to which they will punish you and gaslight you and do violence to you and blacklist you and fire you and get you out of that their organization, I don't want to name drop the number of justice nonprofits that do this mm-hmm. shit and the number of progressive churches that are led by men like this. So yes, I 100% agree. And I think that's why... Because women are tricked, right? Because it looks better than that conservative space over there. Mm -hmm. But it's because we haven't been taught to have language for all the ways patriarchy exists within an institution, with how power is held. We've just been taught to assess a space by that one singular thing. Do they support women in leadership? Okay, great. My assessment is done. And it's so much more complex than that. So yeah, I 100% want to amplify what you're saying there. Well, and racially, this becomes very complicated because while white manhood is the litmus test of whether one is living into biblical patriarchy, um, as a person who exists in black space, I find that many men of color are more loyal to masculinity than they are to their racial or ethnic identity and politics. And so if it comes down to doing right by women or like doing some kind of like becoming like a racial justice leader, Usually it goes toward power and control. Brandy. (laughs) Yes. Look, I grew up in the Korean American church. So if you want to talk about a culture that loves hierarchy, the Korean, like, and that is what is so complex about being a woman of color, because you might go over into these white spaces, 
because they're like more liberative around gender stuff, but then you want to be close to your culture. So then let's say you go into an ethnic specific space, ethnic specific spaces feel more entitled to do patriarchal violence to women from that community. The Latinx church, the black church, the Asian church, men of color love patriarchy. And you're right. They might be leading out. That's why so many racial justice spaces are so problematic because you have men who are comfortable bringing a racial analysis, but will not interrogate their own love and obsession with hierarchy and patriarchy. And they will gaslight women and be like, well, you know, you got to care about the community. So let's just put your you know, needs or critique of me in this area on hold, or they gaslight you around like, well, don't you love the culture? Mm-hmm. And, um, it becomes about loyalty to maintaining the culture, which always benefits them. So yes, always. these men of color led racial justice spaces smell bad to me. There is as much power hoarding and just like, I mean, kind of, I can't explain it. It's that sense of entitlement that if we're not grateful to them, they will check us more than someplace else. And that usually happens in their homes first. Mm. The amount of men of color that I have seen go through horrific divorces or chaotic situations because they abandon their families and their wives to do what in patriarchy becomes women's work, raising children, keeping the house, and then go out and become like famous. They leave their wives at home. They go and become famous, gain a platform. If you're Martin Luther King Jr., have an affair and set the precedent for that for other people and end up out in this world holding up patriarchy while ruining your own family structure and then getting a divorce and being left out well here's the thing it's like like these men get divorced and then we're like well that's really sad that his wife wasn't supportive of him it's really hard that he's doing like all of this really great work and that her and the kids like couldn't just come alongside this work that god is doing in him and so i think there's a way that even those of us who do not identify as men can uphold this character chaos of these men, particularly men of color, in my experience, in my experience, who become justice leaders, who do all of those things. And that's why it's so important that as we talk about how to get free, that it really isn't just about putting women in the positions that men used to be in or women of color in positions that used to just have white. It's about imagining how community is led and held differently and -hmm. particularly justice spaces because are so workaholic and so extractive and so committed to also devaluing the humanity of women of color towards this urgent end that Mm -hmm. I think that that is some of what I try to do in Liberated Together, what I think other folks who are out here trying to create these healing spaces, it's it's not just the end, right? It's that, God, that logic has trapped us. I mean, just look at Jesus, though. I feel like he's modeling a million times. It's not just the end. If the end was the only thing, he could have just plopped onto earth as an adult. But there is a way, a relational way, a whole life way, a, a way that takes time. Um, that is, you know, that isn't just about producing large numbers mm-hmm. that brings the new thing, you know, and it's not just about um, 
again, then the nuclear family becomes co-opted into this producing, right? Women are supposed to produce children and supposed to, you know, create these families so there can be more. And it's just this rigid trap instead of really imagining a less, instead of imagining something different, better, yes. life-giving. Totally. And, and I'd like to, to I, I want us to back up a tiny bit and talk about how that trap gets set. Because mm -hmm. I think that there are images of God that we lean into. Um, and okay, first of all, I just want to name that like everything we say about God is a metaphor. Everything. Yes. Like if God is invisible, then everything we're God is like a hen. Everyone's not like, God is a chicken. You know, like we're not doing that. <laughs> but for some reason with like masculine examples of God, we don't experience those as metaphors about what God might be like and not through the lens of American evangelicalism. We assume that those are inherent, practical, physically lived truths of an invisible God who definitely doesn't have a penis. And so I want us to talk a little bit about some of these masculine metaphors that we gravitate toward, because I think that men are not just pulling stuff out of nowhere. They're play acting a certain picture of God that they're selecting out of the scriptures. Can we talk about some of those metaphors that, yeah, that come up as we think about masculinity and how that shows up? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one is that obviously father is a significant one, but the type of father we're talking about is a very hierarchical father. So it's taking it's taking the idea of the Trinity and which is this interrelated sort of mysterious, beautiful um, relationship of the divine and going, no, there's a dad at the top, an obedient son and an invisible girl at the bottom, right? It, it just, yeah. <laughs> and so the father and the primary thing that the father does is demand obedience from the child, right? Because then the primary way that Jesus is framed is like the obedient son, and so it's very particular. It's connected to the lawyer image, right? So like one of the primary tropes that, and it, that comes from the fact a lot of the men that gave us European theology were lawyers before they were theologians, right? So a lot of us grew up with that, like, God's like a judge and has to give out the hard punishment and then, you know, gets off the bench and takes the punishment himself which is like literally not an analogy that's anywhere in the Bible, but is one that we are like, yes, that's it. So I think and there's- created this, by a lawyer. They're created by a lawyer. And so then it's this idea of God is primarily interested in laws and laws being broken and laws being kept, right? Which gets us to this mm. idea that God is primarily about policing laws. So then we get like the policeman God. So we have like, and it, see all the subtext of all of those is like obedience, laws, broken, not broken. I think the other one that gets in there too is God's like a warrior, right? Like a conquering yes. king. So king would be one of the ones, again, very hierarchical, very top down, very requiring, non-questioning obedience. Mm -hmm. And again, I find that. I just have to continue to name that Jesus contradicts that. Jesus is out here telling stories where people have multiple interpretations and he welcomes people asking him questions. That pedagogy, that way of teaching is so the opposite of this rigid, just obey me, don't ask any questions. So I just want to constantly point out that like, this isn't just biblical. It's a particular bent, you know? Then there was also 
you know, there's the whole like, well, God is like a knight, right? That's part of the warrior thing. God's a knight whose honor has been blemished and we must like restore his honor, which is once again, a medieval European analogy that is nowhere in the Bible. But these are all people who were shaping European theology. Those were, you know, contextual analogies for them, but now have been read on as like, this is how God is. God's primarily a father that wants dutiful, obedient children, a king that requires immediate obedience, a lawyer that's always testing the law, a police who's looking to see if anyone's breaking rules. You know, that those images, and just to say, those are not primarily from the Bible. You can find references to some of them in the Bible, but they're drawn forward because of patriarchy. Yeah, I would add also like a master who needs slaves mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and that God just needs you to be used um, to become an object, which I think contributes to the objectification of women in a patriarchal society that says men actually own women as objects. And then those women are objects of a man's pleasure or a man's reputation or of a man's ego. And then all women, I think in church, this is specifically true, women become the main uh, inflators of pastor's egos and then suddenly they're shocked when things aren't going super super well and so i think you're totally right and that police metaphor is really interesting to me especially in this moment that we're in in society because i think if we understand god to be violent power hoarding a part of a like who's gathering a group of people to enforce god's will in the world then the bible just becomes like a bunch of copaganda where so it makes sense to me that white evangelicalism would be so obsessed with police officers because we're never talking about like women who are police we're always talking about like white men who are officers right like and we saw that when that one woman killed you know we saw we've seen this play out differently and i think that for me uh one of the other images that comes to mind is when i was in like the height of purity culture it was like god as a husband or a boyfriend and so it was like so you don't have sex god has to be your husband or your boyfriend until you divorce God and then get married to your real husband on earth that somehow that's like a thing. Like again, the logics break down really thoroughly. And I think that I'm going to do a ton of name dropping of white dudes who have fucked up our theology during this season. But I think specifically about John Eldridge who uh, wrote wild at heart and well him, he wrote wild at heart and then his wife and him together wrote captivating, which was like the woman's version of like how a woman should be. But wild at hearts, the premise is essentially like, I think I can quote this verbatim. Oh God. Let him deep know. Let him know. There, yeah, it's, Let it, him it know, like, Brandy. D- deep in a man's heart, every man wants a battle to fight, a beauty to rescue, and an adventure to live. And so it takes all of these kind of images that you're talking about, and then it makes them into this inherent thing that God wants and that like is in men. And I'm like, that sounds a little bit more like a like an action movie than it does anything I see in the Bible. But it becomes like, so now then as like a person, so as a, like a young woman growing up in the church, I was like, I need a I need to find a husband because that will make me whole and it will give me a purpose. Like I was actually told in a lot of my church spaces by my youth group leaders that the point of marriage for women was to find a man's vision and mission to come alongside. And therefore I had no vision or mission in and of myself in God's world and had no value until I was joined to some like mediocre man's vision. But it made it so that I needed to find I needed to become hyper effeminate. It meant that I needed to be willing to come alongside and abandon all of my like dreams and aspirations to be in relationship and that I needed to be like really comfortable with like some kind of violent, aggressive way of existing in the world with this partner that I would have in the future. And so I think that image of like husband and boyfriend, one is like one of the main enforcers of purity culture and it's like don't have sex because 
your husband Jesus will be really upset and like he sees everything you're doing. But I think it also is a way of creating subservient women in a specific way. Yes, right. I think it's primarily, it's a very romantic, it's a chivalrous view of patriarchy, which I experienced to be much truer in white spaces. It's Camelot, right? What he's describing Mm -hmm. there is essentially this medieval, noble, women need to be rescued. And what I think it's important to name is I think that's very Western. It comes out of a European frame coming from like a Korean context and a Confucian context, there is no romanticism. The hierarchy of women being lower than men doesn't require a romantic sort of chivalry. It's like, you're lower, carry the stuff. Like, it's your job. This is your duty. This is your responsibility. Without any kind of needing to put like some sort of romance on it. And I think that that's true in the ways that like, you know, different, uh, like, uh, Latino women might talk about machismo, the way that, um, there's, there can be in conservative black church spaces an incredible rigid patriarchy. So just to say that the other thing that was happening, there was another round of kind of cultural colonialism of like the way patriarchy is going to be and the way we're all going to be is this very European chivalry, again, not biblical per se. And it, it just, it's a particular historical mythology that people are like projecting in and being like, for sure, this is like how God wants it to be. And because it sounds romantic, it doesn't sound violent, but it fits yep. all the definitions of patriarchy, which is rigid definitions of what it means to be a man rigid definitions of what it means to be a woman and then placing them in very rigid relationship with one another. And then the super disgusting way that that happened under like the Driscoll era, you know, was like, oh, my super hot wife. You know, this idea that like, I'm a pastor and I just love having sex with my super hot wife. It used to be this thing that they like, these weird evangelicals used to love to say with their wives sitting right there, just being like, isn't it cool that like, I love God and like, I can have my unpaid sex worker, pastor wife right here, you know, available to me whenever I want her. Like the kind of framing of the pastor's wife, if you think she's sexy and always available to you as a way to honor her, it's disgusting. And to add that the only way that a woman, see, progressive men also believe this, that the only way a woman is useful is amplifying and supporting the vision that a man has. Progressive men also believe this. So they love a woman in leadership if all her leadership is going to support them. Founders are really big on this. But then when it comes to a woman actually outgrowing the founder's leadership or the organization outgrowing the founder and that person should transition, then it becomes about doing violence to all those women. Yes. And and I think like I, I know we've mentioned Driscoll a few times and I and I do that intentionally because Driscoll is this very extreme example that I think men use to scapegoat their own problematic masculinity. They're like, Well, I didn't call someone this is a quote of Driscoll's, a penis home, so I'm not that bad. Like, I love my wife. And I'm like, Yeah, but if you don't analyze your entitlement that comes from patriarchy to your spouse's body, to what partnership looks like to who makes sacrifices. And I think, again, I hear church, there's nowhere I hear more gassing up of men in a super stupid way than men who are like real gassed up about uh, their wives, about how how they help with their kids equally or like how they took care of their kids or like babysat their kids. And I'm like, you are their father. Like you are their parent. It is your job. For someone who has such a high view of God as father, you seem to have a really low view of what that means for your own fatherhood. It's absent fatherhood, right? <laughs> it's, it's that view of fatherhood of like, you obey me while I live the life, you know, the visionary life that I have. Yes. It's pretty bad. 
It's not and good. And for my will. And, and I think it's uh, Mary Daly, like I said, in like the 70s, like, if God is male, then male is God. And like that, that plate that plays to point pretty well when we think about these kind of images that we get. And so can we talk a little bit about, so if, if God is warrior, father, husband, hyper-masculine and violent, like I think like that sword vomiting image in Revelation where they're like, Jesus is like ripping through people in the world, which is so antithetical to who he is. King, prince, master, judge, even shepherd, I think gets gendered like in, in different ways. Like no one's like imagining like a female shepherd out there in these streets slash hills. And so can we talk about some of the attributes then? <laughs> Thank you for that geographical correction, that the shepherd is not out here in these streets, but is out here in these hills. Thank you. You don't have to be saying in these streets all the time. <laughs> it seems like that gives some attributes to who or how God is. And I think that that sets the binary for masculinity and femininity in which queerness gets erased most specifically. So to be a man is to be strong, aggressive, violent, big, all-encompassing, brooding, punishing, leading, foreboding. What else? Ashamed of vulnerable emotions in real time. You know, ashamed of equality with a woman. Um, Ashamed of true co-parenting. I think what's really tragic to me is patriarchy is harmful to women and it's harmful to men, right? Bell Hooks has a great article on this where she talks about that complexity. But then patriarchy requires men to also collapse who they are into this small box. And they get power, but they lose the freedom to have their full humanity and what it really means to be created in the image of God. I think what happens then is I feel like actually there isn't that much to talk about because a patriarchal image of God reduces God to such a flat, two-dimensional, um, not mysterious, rigid, kind of interested in rules and power and control primarily, that there isn't a lot of beauty and complexity and dimension to discuss because patriarchy reduces men to something small and simplified and reductionistic, and it does it to God as well. So it's like, I think that's why it becomes hard to imagine like wanting to be in heaven because who yeah. wants to hang out with an ass for all eternity, right? It, it feels like you don't want to go there. It doesn't sound like a wonderful place to be with like this multidimensional, like kind of creative being artist that we can't even begin to wrap our minds around the kind of joy and complexity and, and exploration that awaits us. It just becomes about escaping hell. You know, and, and so I think that I can't actually think of a lot of things because I think we've named them because this type of Christianity is painfully simple in many ways. Mm, totally. One, I think that in the inverse of that, it makes women also very simple and then like queerness so astronomically complicated as to be sinful somehow like i think that's part of what the binary does it says like masculinity is this femininity is like weak and subservient and small and quiet and you know all of those things and then it says like well queerness is like this mixed bag out there that we could not possibly contend with and therefore is outside of god's created order and so i just think that that again that plays to point in in this broader bifurcation of gender oh, it's so exhausting it's exhausting and one thing that that i want that i think feels important about that is that 
Western culture specifically deifies theology over this creative being that you're talking about with so many statements. Um, I'm thinking specifically about the Daver statement. I think it was like an 87, which was from the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Y'all, I'm doing so much research for this season. I'm reading Gospel Coalition articles. I'm reading mm. Piper. I'm reading Grudem. I'm reading Eldridge. I'm out here reading these things. But these statements basically say, I'm going to I'm gonna read a couple of these verbatim because this is how, because when things are written down, they become theological truth in white Western male space. This statement says these things. I, I don't even know if I'll get through all of them. We have been moved in our purpose by the following contemporary developments, which we observe with deep concern. So notice that it becomes that it's like starts like very emotional, benevolent. One, the widespread uncertainty and confusion in our culture regarding the complementary differences between masculinity and femininity. Two, the tragic effects of this confusion in unraveling the fabric of marriage woven by God out of the beautiful and diverse strands of manhood and womanhood. Three, I'm actually going to read all of these because I think it feels kind of important and it's structurally what a lot of us have been given. Three, the increasing promotion given to feminist egalitarianism with accompanying distortions or neglect of the glad harmony portrayed in scripture between the loving, humble leadership of redeemed husbands and the intelligent, willing support of that leadership by redeemed wives. We're only three out of ten in. Four, the widespread ambivalence regarding the values of motherhood, vocational homemaking, and the many ministries historically performed by women. Five, the growing claims of legitimacy of sexual relationships which have biblically and historically been considered illicit or perverse and in the increase of pornographic portrayal of human sexuality. Six, the upsurge of physical and emotional abuse in the family. Sure. Seven, the emergence of roles of men and women in church leadership that do not conform to biblical teaching but backfire in the crippling of biblically faithful witness. Eight, the increasing prevalence and acceptance of hermeneutic oddities devised to reinterpret apparently plain meanings of Bible texts. Nine, the consequent threat to biblical authority, read patriarchal authority, as the clarity of scripture is jeopardized and the accessibility of its meaning to ordinary people is withdrawn into the restricted realm of technical ingenuity, which feels like this statement to me. And behind all this, the apparent accommodation of some within the church to the spirit of the age at the expense of winsome, radical, biblical authenticity, which in the power of the Holy Spirit may reform rather than reflect our ailing culture. And the statement goes on with 10 points on things that they affirm, but I won't bore us with those. But this feels, this statement feels like it encapsulates and then puts like all this fluffy God language on what is chauvinism. Yeah. Well, and particularly I hear this like, oh, the diminishing of homemaking. And again, I just want to name that that's a particular kind of nostalgia for white middle class and upper middle class suburban life post-World War II. Like, yes. I don't know, Asian immigrant women have always worked. Black women have always worked. Always. Latina women, right? Especially I come from something, uh, lived in Southern California, so I'm going to talk about the Mexican-American experience. Women have always worked. So like, even in this, it's, it is about white patriarchy is biblical, yes. you know, and it just, and I love that it always presents itself as like, we are taking the most objective take on the Bible when it's the most syncretistic and the most sort of culturally biased thing there is. And I think that, again, we have such a deep, we have such a mistrust of women 
and mm-hmm. such a bent towards trusting men that even when they're putting out incredible nonsense like this, we're sort of bent towards trusting them. But you have to know that like the church fathers, many of the founding theologians are raging misogynists. I mean, yes. raging haters of women and that there's still people that like our pastors in the pulpit today reference. So I posted about this, you know, about this quote from Augustine, which was like, I don't see what sort of help woman was created to provide man with. If one excludes procreation, if woman's not given to man for help in bearing children, what help could she be to till the earth? If help were needed for that, man is better. The same goes for comfort in solitude. That's Augustine. The dude who's giving us, you know, the first step towards our just war theory. But like, Uh think about if this is his view of women, how is he interpreting every single scripture about men and about men and about the world and about how things are supposed to be ordered when he's like, literally, if y'all didn't give birth, y'all are useless unapologetically putting that in writing. There's this like white feminist theologian who's like women looking for freedom from patriarchy and Christianity is like a black person looking for freedom in the KKK. (laughs) Well, and it's, I think that as people wrestling with this, we really have to understand the depth to which patriarchy is, you know, intertwined. I always take it back to the, you know, The women were entrusted with news of Jesus's Mm -hmm. resurrection. And literally four seconds later, when they are doing the very thing that Jesus has entrusted them to do, that God has entrusted them to do, that the angel has given them to do, they are faithfully executing what has been given to them to do. Men's first response to that is, it sounded like foolishness to them. And so I feel like you can be doing the very thing God gave you to do. Patriarchy is so rigid, like they won't believe you. Men do not believe women. And it's deep and it's deep and it's deep. Yes. So it's not just like, oh, I didn't realize it was like, oh, we just tweak a few things. No. To get liberated from patriarchy within Christianity and within ourselves is a deep excavation. Yes. And and you described um, how patriarchy turns women into threats. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Because, again, I think that queerness becomes a threat because of this demonization of femininity or anything that's considered outside of like a masculine thing. The the thing that comes to mind for me first is like the Billy Graham rule. So for anyone who's not familiar with the Billy Graham rule, Billy Graham refused to be alone in a room with a woman who wasn't his wife. And I was like, the, the, there are multiple ways you could interpret that. The correct way to interpret that would be this man has no self-control and believes women to be so like so wanting to like jump him that he can't be in a room alone with them. And I'm like, maybe that's a better interpretation than women are inherently sexual and therefore they are threats because that's what the Billy Graham rule has come to mean. And it, and it's a way that pastors and preachers and men talk about like how faithful they are to their wives because like they won't do that. And I'm like, you know, what would be more impressive is if you could just be in normal relationship with women. Right. Like if you have like a woman coworker and you have to have a meeting to be like, I can't have a meeting with you, my coworker. Now, we've seen Christian men are hoes and they can't be trusted. So I feel like the Billy Graham rule primarily is connected to the fact that like Christian men have shown like they like to hoe about town. And I'm not saying that in the way that I support hoeing about town. I'm saying that in a problematic way that men with power do it in a way that's exploitative. But Mm -hmm. 
yeah, it's it, what happens then is then men with all the leadership power and experiencing and networking power and influence never get around women to influence and mentor them and give them any opportunities. And so yeah. it sounds faithful, but it's really a way to keep women out of opportunities for leadership growth because having meetings with other leaders is how you grow as a leader. So <laughs> – yeah. Yeah, I think, yes, women's bodies are seen as a threat. I think the archetype, if we're going to talk about archetypes, is the idea of a witch, right? Because witches are essentially women who do what they want, who have access to power that's like not under the control of men. And I think why witches are sort of like so threatening is because they like live out in the woods and they're just like not a part of these patriarchal institutions. And that literally has to be set on fire. Right. It's it's not about like real witchcraft. It is about women who are liberated from patriarchy are a threat. And that's actually true, but not in the way that it's trying to be framed. It's it's not a threat in that um, women are so evil and untrustworthy. It is a threat in that it integrated healed woman who's not giving not going to live in these tiny containers will actually undo patriarchy. I mean, I'd say it all the time. I say it in the Asian American cohorts. I'm like, I wish Asian American women would pick up and leave the Asian church because we run that ish. If we picked up and took all our labor away and just refused to stay in these places that um, exploit us, they would, they, <laughs> they would cease to exist. And that's just true of the church in general. I'm like, why do we keep staying in places that treat us so terribly? And I think some of that is because we can't imagine another way. And I do feel like before we close, it's just important to talk about the fact that one, we don't have to stay in these toxic patriarchal spaces and beg them to incrementally change over a hundred years. Like we have so much freedom and ways to connect with one another where we could be co-creating the very spaces we want to be in. And so part of what patriarchy does, and I think um, you got to this some with Dr. Jennings, is it's a collapse of the imagination. It lets us believe that being tolerated a little bit more is the best we can hope for. And it's because we really believe at the deep level that this is how God wants it. And it's not true. We were not made for this. This is not what we were created for. And we can, we have the freedom to go out and innovate and make mistakes and try other ways. We can create life with Jesus and each other outside of white supremacy and outside of patriarchy. It's deeply internalized. It'll take time to undo. But for the love of baby Jesus coming out of Mary's womb, don't stay and beg toxic leaders who will not budge to affirm your humanity maybe 10 years from now. Yes. And it'll give you like a celebration plaque on a Sunday morning for how faithful you've been while you've basically died to make the church work. Look. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. When I think that I, I, I think I want to give us, I, I, <laughs> maybe what I feel like is the temptation to be like, so what's the hope? But I actually don't think that's where we are in these conversations around patriarchy. Um, and next week, we're going to be talking about misogyny and misogynoir specifically. And so mm-hmm. I don't think we actually have to move into like that hopeful place. But I think I do want to have us do a little bit of speaking to men around what this what this means for men who are actually wanting to take this anti-patriarchal way of Jesus 
seriously. Because if Jesus is breaking all hierarchies, and you can go to Paul for that if you want, no Jew, Greek, male, female, slave, free. You can you can take that straight to Paul, our favorite, um, our, our favorite man in the Bible. Our favorite for Theo, many people bro. above Jesus. God, <laughs> yeah. But for men who are in positions of power or leadership, which if you identify as a man, you have those things. Yep. What might you say, Erna, to men who are early on a journey of unlearning patriarchy? I would say set the bar so much higher than supporting women in leadership. Begin to understand how patriarchy influences. I think men are simply deeply unaware of the privilege with which they walk. I think that they don't understand, I mean, just basics of like rape culture, like how a woman walks on this earth, right? Femme presenting people walk on this earth. So I think beginning to let, to learn, to, I mean, have humility, to see the pervasiveness of it, to understand how you're privileged as a man all the time. And in Christian spaces, to have the humility to acknowledge how much your ego likes the privileging of men in Christian spaces. Like, you have to name that. Dudes love that stuff. There's a reason there's so much just momentum towards it. I think then to be rethinking power, you know, to be rethinking structure, to be, and to realize, like, you love it. You love it because it benefits you every day. And it doesn't have to be something you're even aware of to have it happen. So I feel like that's why I, would, like you, I do think men need to grow in awareness. I think that that kind of paternalistic, like, oh, I'll come alongside and help the ladies. Uh-huh. I'm like, yes. don't, don't be a douche. Don't be like that. Oh, see, even that line. Don't be a jerk. Okay, don't be like that. Right? rescuing women from patriarchy is not the primary thing that needs to happen. You doing your work to understand how deeply entrenched it is in you down to, down to like everything. Men think that they are sharing household work and child rearing responsibilities if they do more than their dads did, not if they are actually sharing it. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think just the bar is so low for men and the level of what they are expected to do around this and the the level of expectation they have for themselves for having done the work. There's just a lot to do. That's where I would start. I don't know, Brandy, what would you pitch? What would you put out there? Don't let shitty men be your bar. Jesus is like, if you're a Christian, (laughs) the bar should not be being better than a mediocre man that you are around or an outright toxic. Like when people are like, Ooh, Donald Trump's so terrible. And I'm like, literally everybody knows that. Like you being like, oh, I heard this thing that Donald Trump said about grabbing someone, like, we need to be against that in the church. I'm like, literally, that's not saying anything. Like, that's just saying we've taken the very, very worst standard. The standard should be Jesus. Mm-hmm. And like, I think that many need to study how Jesus interacted with women in a really intentional way. And to do that through the lens of women, through the books and preaching and teaching of women and need to learn other hermeneutics for which to understand the scriptures. Because I think if the bar is other men and the bar is not Jesus, you're always going to land in patriarchy. But I think if the bar is Jesus and this kind of liberating, opening up, queering of what community and family and relationship looks like, you'll land in a pretty different place. I would also say on a personal level, quit using the phrase giving voice. You don't give anyone anyone's voice. Um, You might give them a microphone. But I hear lots of men being like, I'm giving voice to the women in the community or like letting someone. And I'm like, 
Okay, the other one I hate is like, oh, let's just honor the sisters. Like, let's just Ugh. honor the sisters. I was like, I'll be at conferences where like the whole speaker platform is all dudes and like a dude and his wife. But they'll be like, oh, yep. we just want to honor the women and like honor the sisters and what they're doing and be like, honor the women by like actually sharing power. Yes. You know, and then they'll be like, oh, no, well, we don't want to be so superficial. You know, <laughs> Just so much nonsense. So I much I also think nonsense. that people have to hear what they're saying when they say that. If you're like, we just want to make space to honor the women. I'm like, then what is your baseline? Your baseline is dishonor. Like, if you have to be that intentional about it, you clearly are at a baseline of dishonoring women on a regular basis that, such that you would have to make that pivot. In the same way that we're like, Black History Month, and we like feel all good about ourselves. I'm like, we do the same thing with women all the time. We assume that when we celebrate, that it's like a proactive good thing rather than a retroactively bad thing. Yeah. So I would say that. And then I would, I would say... um think about your money. Uh, when I see, and I have seen, the speaking slates for major Christian conferences, and I see the difference in pay in Christian spaces between men and women, mm -hmm. it is appalling. Mm -hmm. It is appalling. It could be the difference between $3,000 for a plenary speaker to $10,000, $20,000. Is the pay equitable? Because if it doesn't show up in the money, then it's not showing up anywhere else. Because if you do not care enough to make sure that women are getting paid the same that you are, you're clearly living out, and I think this is where progressive men get it all fucked up, is that they will take so much more money than their non-male counterparts, non-binary or women alike. It's just, I, I have no, all I have is a bunch of swear words for it. Um, and I think that that is important because it reveals that we, it reveals the thing that you're talking about, that we have no dreams outside of hierarchy. And I think for men, one of the best things that you can do is to look at cultures and societies and communities who are rejecting hierarchy, paying attention to the feelings that it gives you when you read about them or pay attention to them or imagine living in them and then ask yourself why. I would say also just if you are a founder of a nonprofit or a head pastor, you are exerting patriarchy and you are exerting violent patriarchy onto people around you, whether or not it's your intention and getting, paying someone, a woman to help you see that would be important. Don't expect all these dude founders, pastors love a good sidekick lady who they think is their friend and he is the bane of her existence. I can't tell you how many times I've seen that dynamic where he's like, oh, yeah, we're in it to win it together. And she's like, he is killing me, but he pays the bill. I, I get paid. He's my supervisor. So we have to pretend we're best friends. He needs me to pretend I'm his best friend because his ego can't handle that he is the source of my trauma. So I'm like, you should pay someone to coach you to do better. You paid a lot of money to go to a patriarchal racist seminary and get your theological education. So you should also pay to have it undone. When you are looking for liberative exegesis of the Bible, obviously that should come from women of color primarily. So don't be like, oh my I'm, God, I just... <laughs> Dudes love to be like, yeah, I pivoted from Piper to Brueggemann, you know? <laughs> <laughs> feel like y'all trust yourselves so much that's why like i couldn't listen to that driscoll podcast because it was like once the dude was like well yeah i myself was also a part of this network for seven years i was like 
then what in the world could you possibly tell us about it when you agreed to it and consented to it? So, yes, listen to the voices of the people who are not only impacted negatively by the system, but who are imagining new ways. Don't trust other people who benefit from it, who probably, if they have anything insightful to say, stole it from a woman anyway. Well, there is that. That has definitely happened. Okay, I do feel a little weird if we talk to men specifically, but don't give like a, for folks who do not identify as men, Mm -hmm. for our trans, non-binary, for women and femmes, what kind of roadmap or like markers would you give folks to hold as we journey away from patriarchy? Because I think it feels really vulnerable Mm -hmm. to start that journey. Um, And I can start by just saying that it is really okay to trust what you want and to kind of buck the roles that have been given to you as what you would want. I think for me, it's one of the most liberating things, actually in in Erna, in you and I's friendship, is just being like, neither of us want to have kids. And like, that was something that I was like really told I needed to have and that would make my life full, was like being a partner and having kids. And like, I think that not feeling like I have to do that anymore alleviates a lot of pressure in other areas of my life that allows me to live a lot more freely, to spend my money differently, to engage with people who are potential partners differently. Like it allows a lot of freedom. And so I think for many of us, like bucking the role of homemaker or wife or spouse or partner or parent or mom, like that that can be a really liberating thing to do, even if it feels deeply, deeply vulnerable, because I think that many of us don't actually know what we want because we've been given such a prescribed and rigid view of ourselves inside of a patriarchal system. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I hate that I have to say that, but because like these conversations are so divisive, obviously, if you want to do that stuff, do it. You want to have a baby, sure. have a baby. You want to like stay at home and financially, that's an option do it. But obviously we're providing counter narrative because there's so much momentum in Christian spaces towards that particular expression. I mean, I would say when I just say, I love us. I love Mm. our bodies. Beautiful, beautiful, you know, intersex, trans, femme, women bodies are just God created and in the image of God and so good and so beautiful and given to you by creator to be your friend on this journey, not your enemy, this thing you have to fight your whole life, but actually this beautiful partner in knowing the community of creation and being in relationship with creator and understanding how deeply you are made in the image of God. So I just want to say, I love us. We're beautiful. I also want to say patriarchy is not what is the glue that is holding the order of the universe together. And we are not doing harm to seek our healing and liberation. In fact, I believe we are doing good to everybody. Yes. Because these systems, white supremacy harms white people and people of color. Patriarchy harms men and women and our queer fam. So... I just want to say I love us and we're so good, so beautiful, so in the image of creator and to please don't stay in places that feel so entitled to diminish our humanity. It is not required by God. No. 
Yeah. And the only thing I would add to that is that I think it's important for us to know that our bodies are not threats. Mm-mm. That I think to the point that you're saying, like, our bodies are not threats. They were made for our good, for our desire, for our pleasure. And mm-hmm. many of us were taught to be afraid of our own bodies um, because they were framed as either not fitting for a patriarchal society or as inherently sexual or fleshy, like sexual in a, like a demonized way in the church mm-hmm. and problematic. And I think for many of us, like, we actually don't know our own bodies. Like, oh, yeah. I think about how Christian sex education in patriarchal mm-hmm. society is inexistent. It's really sex miseducation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't learn about our bodies. And so I think for many folks, you need to learn your body. You, you need to learn, like, yeah, Look. what you like, don't like, what your body is like. And to own that and to honor that. I'm sure you'll talk about this more in purity culture and feel free to cut this out. But I am a big believer that, yeah going moving away from that like our bodies are dangerous and our desires are forbidden and who can know especially for um women with uteruses like it's dangerous down there and i feel like look everybody should understand masturbation everybody should understand what their body looks like everybody i mean i'm just like creator was like i'm gonna put a button on your body that's just for pleasure you got to think about a god who was like i came up with the clitoris it's amazing. It's literally just a pleasure-oriented part of your body. A creator who came up with that is not afraid of your body, right? Patriarchy wants to destroy your sense of ownership over pleasure, desire, and you can't give consent when you don't even know how to hear what you want or what you want. There's so, I mean, right, there's a hundred conversations to have but on that, but I think just to say, like, yes. God's not afraid of pleasure. I mean, (laughs) it's to explore that and feel free to explore that. And, you know, I read pleasure activism with a group of women from my church and found it a wonderful um, conversation book to to begin to have some of these conversations. And so, yes, we, our bodies, yeah, not only are they not a threat, they're amazing. Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. On so many levels. Go get them, kids. Masturbation, it's it's great. Get out there. <laughs> go go get you some, fam. I, I just, if, if that's a takeaway from today, let it. Go do your homework, fam. <laughs> Which I truly appreciate because I think that it actually um, pivots from a binary that gets given to us in purity culture as a subsection of patriarchy, which is that Men are animals, people who are not men are objects. Mm-hmm. And I think that when we reclaim our own bodies, we become human. Yes. And so I think that like part of the journey of unlearning patriarchy is owning our humanity more deeply. Yes. Yes. You know, and I'm not trying to oppress our asexual folks. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm just saying just get out in these streets however is liberative to you. Explore. Yes. Don't be scared. I so, I so appreciate that too, that like we... There is so much space for people who are asexual, aromantic, demisexual, who are figuring out what their sexuality and gender expression looks like. And there's room for all of that. And that God is not scared of any of that. No. That you are not doing damage to yourself by exploring who you are. That, like, it is actually honoring to creator to most fully explore. Even as Dr. Jennings said, like, the, the unfolding mystery of who we are. We're figuring that out. And it's okay if you are still a mystery to yourself. And so I just want to say there's room for everybody on this journey and that patriarchy is messing up all of us. 
Yes, trying to put all of us in a tiny little box. We're trying to be out free in these streets and on these hills. (laughs) (laughs) I love a (laughs) callback. Well, Erna, is there anything that you want to plug right now? Anything you're up to on these hills? I mean... Floating on these oceans? I hang out mostly on Instagram, so you can find me at Erna Kim Hackett. I have a newsletter, so you can sign up for that through liberatedtogether.com. That's probably the main ways, but I love this stuff, Brandy, and just so excited to see where this season goes and the journey of healing and integration and liberation and... um, Getting out of these little boxes of oppression. Yeah, me too. If we can get out of the little box of oppression, or at least like open it and peek our heads out of it, I feel like we really did a thing. <laughs> love it. Love it. Thanks so much for your time, Erna. Thanks, Brandy. Thank you for joining for another episode of Reclaiming My Theology. Honestly, y'all, I just love doing this with you and with my guests. It is such a gift in my life, and I couldn't do it without you. So thank you for being on this journey, for continuing on, and as we move toward purity culture soon, we want to keep being supportive, making sure that we're creating community space to process, to engage, to kind of know what's up, because this stuff is hard. It is life-changing, it is transformative, and it is painful. And so I'm just excited to be on this journey with you. It is really the greatest gift of my life. So thanks for helping me to do better while we do a little bit better together. 